Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds one. three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. And of course, read us over at IndieCornrows.com. I am psyched to be joined by good friend and colleague, Caitlin Cooper, as we uh, we discuss the really difficult weekend that the Pacers just faced going 0-2, dropping to 1-6 on the season and currently 15th in the Eastern Conference. Um, before we get dark, Caitlin, how are you doing? How's your weekend been? I'm doing pretty well, separate from the Pacers. I hope that we can have energy that's better than the first game against Toronto and that by the time we get done with this, that we're like not last in listening attendance as the Pacers are right now. Yeah, we're uh, we're going to be the embodiment of the Jimmy Butler bubble uh, bubble picture when he just leaned over the, uh, the side table, like exhaling, because I think that's how we're going to feel at the end of this. Um, so, yeah, as mentioned off rip, Pacers are one and six. Uh, I don't really think either of us expected them to beat the Brooklyn Nets. Um, but I do think both times that they played that it, it was pretty disappointing that this team lost to Toronto, both in close games. Um, a lot that we can take away from it, but I think let's just start overarching. I mean, this team is clearly, you know, as, as the, as the front office and coaching staff have let us know, this is a, they start with a very tough schedule. Um, yes, but also starting one and six is just not like, you can't just chalk that all up to having a tough schedule. Uh, where are you at coming out of this weekend and headed into a, another, another week with, with some pretty solid teams coming in? I guess I would just kind of flip it back to you and ask like of the games that they've lost, were there ones that you thought they should have won that game? Like with the people that were available, like if something else happened or changed, like, did you feel like any of those losses should have been wins? I I think that's that's a good question. Um, not really. Like I think the Charlotte game, yes, that should have been a win in my opinion. Like that that just shit went sideways at the end of the game. Can say the same thing about Washington. I get that they were both tight. Milwaukee, no. Um, that first Toronto game, the team just like completely slogged through it. Did not show up. Um, I feel like that one should have at least been close. Like given what this team. I guess I should put it like this. Given what the team's aspirations are, they should have beaten Toronto or they should have at least put out a better effort. Um, but yeah, with Brooklyn, no, I don't, I don't see how they, they beat that Brooklyn team, even with James Harden and Kevin Durant being off. Like uh, I know a lot of people were complaining about the fouls, but I did. I thought that was, that was called fairly, frankly, like the only thing that I did complain about, and I did tweet this out too. That was a push off on Tory Craig. I'm going to screw I this is side rant, Caitlin, but I cannot stand when we hype up crossovers that are actually push-offs. No, it was a push-off. That's an offensive foul. I don't need it. We, we don't need to pretend like this was some great dribble move, like whatever. Um, Tory Craig was going sideways regardless, but it, it was a push-off. Um, but point being, I, I do think this team could be 500 if some things were going differently. Uh, you know, maybe schematically that we'll talk about. 
the injuries haven't helped, but I mean, I mean, do you feel the same or, or how do you feel with that? I mean, I feel like the last two games, I want to give them somewhat of a pass on because like, if we just run down everything that's befallen this team already, like I'll admit when I'm watching the Brad Wanamaker minutes, I'm oftentimes yeah. thinking about Edmund Sumner and like, not that Edmund Sumner is going to run offense for you, but just like you would have gotten a punch in other areas that you're just not getting. Like, I'm not trying to be super rude to what the Brad Wanamaker experience has been, but it's like, he comes off a pick, takes two dribbles, immediately aborts his dribble, or he's taking like some wild layup. Like they could not run Spain pick and rolls with him against Brooklyn. They couldn't run Spain pick and rolls with TJ McConnell against Brooklyn because everybody's ducking under. Like I admit that there's a lot of limitations in terms of what they can run. And yeah. last year, I mean, you don't have, they did have Karis Levert for half a game last year, but like, they only played two games last year without Brogdon, Lavert, and Warren, one against the Knicks and one against Milwaukee, and you're seeing similar themes across both. TJ McConnell does a lot of useful, good things. He's not a starting point guard in the NBA because there's just so much stuff that you have to plan and work around for him to be effective. You can't use as many screens, which means you're not getting as much stuff with the role, man. That pressed Duarte into a bigger role than what I think it's probably fair to ask of him at this point. I mean, you and I were talking before we hopped on here. You could see a lot of times in that Brooklyn game where they needed him to be a better passer out of the pick and roll and be manipulating those windows and finding Sabonis on the roll, particularly on a few possessions where either one of Patty Mills or James Harden was the low man at the rim and he didn't deliver that pass and ended up like taking a tough layup. So I don't know that it's necessarily fair for me to be expecting that he's going to be that type of a primary playmaker right now, but that's mm -hmm. just what the state of the Pacers are right now. Like they don't have a lot of guards that they can run pick and roll with. That's why it was a breath of fresh air to see Karras early on in some of those plays last night, because he can at least get you downhill. I mean, even in the game against Toronto, why well, I want to give him somewhat of a pass last night, like Jeremy, ended up tweaking his ankle there at the end. So I don't know how much that was impacting him late, but you could see that he rolled it pretty bad. Duarte took the shot to the knee. At one point in the third quarter, you could see that Sabonis got a stinger in his elbow when I rewatched it this morning mm. because he got hit and then you could see him throughout the game keep working that out. So like these aren't excuses, but like when you have so many people that are either already on the shelf or are getting hurt midway through the game and you're having to basically use like Sabonis is getting swarmed. Like, let's just call a spade a spade. These last three games, he's drawing two or three defenders sometimes when he's not even having the ball, unless he's up above at the three point line. So he's kind of being used as like a glorified touch passer, unless he's getting offensive rebounds or shooting threes, which is a whole nother talking point, but just so that people can get downhill momentum. Like they're just having to do that so that Justin can get downhill or Jeremy can get downhill or, you know, try to get anybody in the paint because we can, I know we're going to do a segment on the threes here coming up, but I mean, some of it, so against Brooklyn and Toronto, these two games, I kind of like, I understand where it got to the point that it was, even though I questioned some of the process, but like what you're bringing up, you know, blowing the massive lead against the Hornets, that in my opinion is a game that they should have won. Mm -hmm. um, the Wizards is kind of a little bit of an iffy loss because their defense was just so bad through the first yeah. half of that game until they kind of just had to rely on the zone because that's the only thing they were getting stops in. And then they switched their scheme up, which I thought looked really good against Miami. It had some bright spots in both games against Toronto and Brooklyn, though they've had breakdowns. But I'm with you. I didn't really expect them to beat Milwaukee. They have nobody primary to defend Giannis. And then their their wall coverage was bad. And then once they finally did, they were giving up bad angles. But to come out that flat 
and the first game against Toronto was a little concerning, if we're being honest. Like, you've won one game, and you're already coming out, like, I don't want to say defeated, but just, like, completely lack of energy. And I know that I've gone on a million tangents already, but I did want to ask you, like, after that Toronto game when OG had, like, the 16 points or whatever it was in the first quarter, I believe it was Tony East asked Rick the question where he was like, you know, what do you think it is about the Pacers that, like, last year they gave up season high games to Mikel Bridges and Harrison Barnes and OG Ananobi. And now tonight they really struggled with OG in the first quarter. And then to their credit, they did end up doubling him in the second half and they were better in the second game. But Rick kind of said, well, those are really good players. Those are guys that we struggled with against Dallas too. And he's like, I didn't watch those games. And it kind of surprised me a little bit that he hadn't like, I'm not saying he should have watched every minute from the season, But once he admitted that, I'm like, well, it kind of makes sense what your approach on offense was then, because were you surprised when the, when the Raptors came out and were swarming Sabonis? No, not at all. I wasn't surprised at all. And not just because Nick Nurse said before the game, Hey, we're going to send three or four bodies at him, but because that's exactly what they did last season, not in the last game of the year when they were basically going against the G league roster, but in the first game before Sabonis had the knee contusion, they swarmed him. They basically played a reverse box and won. Like I showed it, like some people were making comment, like, oh, I bet Bjorkren gave Nick Nurse some tips. I'm like, no, this is what Nick Nurse did last year. So like, it's kind of surprised me a bit that they came out like that off kilter and not just like the first play where Sabonis got the traveling call and got himself off off balance. Cause I kind of did think as the game went on that he got better just getting the ball out mm-hmm. and being used as a decoy but that they weren't prepared for how to scheme around that. Like to see a possession where he's drawing two and Fred Van Vliet's on the weak side, guarding Miles, Justin Holiday, and TJ McConnell all at the same time. I don't even get how that happens. Like how is somebody that size being allowed to just guard three people at once? Like I was just a little bit, I mean, like I said, surprised that they weren't more prepared for how that team was going to guard Sabonis when that's what they did last year. But I don't know how you were on that. No, I, I am right there with you. Um, it like, like you mentioned, it just kind of felt like they, they came out and were like completely stunned. And I was like, well, the, why like this, you could literally just ask Domas, how were you defended last year? Well, they, they clobbered me. Like it, it was like watching Ali Frazier, but um, no, I, I, I agree. And another, another quick side tangent. How'd you feel about uh, Domas being put on, on OG last night? I know it wasn't perfect, but no, I thought um, he had some really I good I kind of thought, yeah, I thought he did a good job considering OG's hand wasn't really quite there to, to blow by anybody. He's not super bursty. Like um, I liked the idea of putting Domas on him and just using his strength to try and mitigate him a little bit. I thought it was a lot more effective than anything that they did in the first game. Well, right, because, I mean, they didn't even play Torrey Craig until the fourth quarter of that game. Like, they were just – basically, it was just Jeremy and Justin getting overpowered by OG's strength mm-hmm. in the first quarter and then him blowing by – I think he blew by Miles once or twice on the perimeter in the first quarter and not necessarily because of Miles' fault. Like, it was more outside of a closeout. But, um, yeah, no, that was one thing that I actually did like about last night's game, and it was a contrast to last season because – Nate Bjorkren put Sabonis on OG some in the first quarter and he was having trouble staying in front. So I thought there was one possession where he completely denied him the ball and it made Toronto get outside of their offense and have to reset on the other side. There was another one where he forced him into a step back and kept, took off his driving angle. Like I thought he did a pretty good job, all things considered. And I think that continues to show what you and I mentioned and what I wrote about a week ago that I think defensively, 
like it, by his own standard, he's been a lot better by comparison to what he was last season. And some of that's him getting put in better spots, but it's also just like, he deserves credit for just being more nimble and moving better out on the perimeter than he did a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. 1000%. He's been, he's been a lot better. And even, even yesterday, like he's been so active. I actually think he leads the team in steals right now. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's helping him with the hedging. And again, yeah, like, like that, he's been it, so he's really surprised guys coming out on hedges and, and just getting the ball on doubles like that. Um, I do wonder how teams will adjust that eventually, but regardless, I think he's looked pretty good with that. And same thing with you using miles on hedges too. I think overall they've both been pretty solid with that. Um, yeah, it hasn't so much been their fault up top, but there has been times where their, their X out rotations on the weak side have been, uh, poor or like there was one egregious possession I think in the third quarter last night where it's like again somebody didn't even the, close out yeah was... well and and before yeah because as soon as the big is gonna hop up there above whether it's Miles or Sabonis you have to force that person over the screen and Duarte just let him have the rejection mm-hmm. so then the guy had to come off the corner and then they just gave up a wide open three but um I understand why they're doing it like a year ago I'm not sure you could have told Sabonis like hey you're going to be more active and, and instead of reactive and drop, because I'm not sure he could have handled it. I mean, I talked about that with what Bjorkman tried to do against Dallas and Golden State, and you really couldn't. But, like, they just kind of have to because their point of attack defense, like, it's just putting more pressure on the bigs to be coming and be further away from the basket because I just don't think they're going to be able to completely contain people unless that's what they do, at least not until they're healthy. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, one last tangent on the defense that I do want to ask you um, do you think Miles is a little bit worse as a perimeter defender this year? Like, do you think his mobility has dropped off a little bit? I know it's I mean, a very random question to ask. No, it's not years. a random question. Um, I I think that my answer is probably people aren't going to like it because for some reason, like there was this emphasis last year that anytime he got out on a switch, like the broadcast and people would be like, oh, he takes a lot of pride in this. And then if he got beat, like nobody really talked about it, but mm. like there were games last year. And again, I don't know why Bjorkman was doing this, but like they're up in Boston and they, at the end of the game, they stayed big, but they're switching everything. And, and like, I don't really think miles should be able to contain Kemba, but he wasn't containing Kemba and the Giannis stuff was pretty rough. I mean, yeah. I do give he and Sabonis and Goga a bit of a pass because they were just pretty bad at loading to the blocks and the elbows, but still like two years ago when they put miles on Giannis, he tied him up like two or three times. Like he did a better job at catching his first step than what we saw. Um, But I mean, when the season started, he sat there and said that he could guard three, fours and fives, which I think is a bit of a stretch from what we've seen so far. So I don't know that I would necessarily say it's worse. I just don't think anyone was paying attention to what it already was. Like there are some occasions where, he can get stops in those situations, but I don't think he's like a switchy big. Like I would yeah. never say he was like, you know, Draymond or Bam, and I'm going to feel comfortable like doing what Bjorkern attempted to do. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, to me, like, and this is, I'm going somewhere with this, but just in general, like, I don't want to see him get isolated on the perimeter. Uh, if we're talking like above the break, like, I think if you get him, if he's able to use the baseline to his advantage and keep somebody on the corner, he's pretty solid at that. Um, and obviously, you know, like, I feel like we haven't seen nearly as much with him playing at the level of the screen. Like we've seen hedging and whatnot. I don't think we've really seen as much with him at the level, um, which I would like to see more of because of how good his hand activity is and, and what he can do to ball handlers. Um, 
but also just just granted like you're talking about i do wonder a little bit if the you know the the toe injury that he had has yeah. uh, has has hurt his mobility but i agree too like he just is not as good of a and it's it's not even to fault him. Like I think a lot of people have. Yeah, there's not mad that many him. bigs who can do that. Exactly. Period. There's like four or five guys in the NBA who can do it, but Miles is is not one of them right now. If we're being completely honest. Yeah, I mean, um, there was a possession last night where I think he like precious that you took him all the way to the rim from outside the three point line at the top of the key. So I mean, that one wasn't great, but. Some of it too, I think, has to do with how they're getting back in transition, or if they yeah, are. Yeah, the transition defense has been so rough. And where stuff's at, but yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that can flow into uh, our first thing then. Uh, the team is taking a lot of threes. Uh, what? Well, that's not not they the greatest. They certainly were last point. night. Yeah, <laughs> yes, last night was a uh, was a lot of threes. They're only fifteenth in three uh, three point attempts uh, per cleaning the glass, but. And it's more looking at when they go through these stretches. Yes. When they just take a million threes, and it's not, it's not as simple as them just saying, "Oh, we want to shoot." But a lot is getting taken away from them. But it also just feels like they're not going to things. Like we were talking about this a little bit before we got on. It, it there has been a clear de-emphasis on having any kind of post-up opportunities for Domas or Miles. Um, I. You know, Rick hasn't said anything about that, but it's been pretty clear in how things have played out. Like both Miles and Domas are shooting 75% or better at the rim, but they're not getting real rim opportunities um, unless it's out of a role. And especially against a team like Toronto, where at times their tallest player was six foot seven yesterday, like there were real opportunities to attack a mismatch on the inside. And no, even if it's not perfect, like it's another way to generate a paint touch that isn't happening because you have nobody who can get downhill. Um so, like, I, I don't know. That was really frustrating to see yesterday. Like, we mentioned this, too, and I tweeted it out yesterday. Like, TJ McConnell should never shoot an above-the-break three with, with double-digit shot clock seconds left. Or even, I mean, I don't think TJ should ever shoot an above-the-break three. But, you know, as part of the offense, and like you mentioned, too, like coming off of a double drag, like it was it was, it was was vexing to see happen in the moment and just in general. And, um, like, if you're going to – Again, you know, it, it feels like in some ways that, that this team has been pretty dismissive of having two bigs on the roster. They don't really want to talk about it. They want to, you know, play a different way. But at the same time, if you're going to have two bigs on the roster who are both starting level players, you got to make the most of them. And it really just has not felt like that on the offensive end. Like they've really been able to do that or, or have, have really attempted to, if we're being honest. Right. So I agree with all that. I mean, in the second half last night, I tweeted this earlier this morning, but they took 61% of their shots in the second half last night as threes. They shot 33% on those and they did not attempt a single free throw. Like, and I get it for all the things I said before, like you watch it there. I have the one possession, the one, the threes that are frustrating me the most is it's not even so much the quantity of the threes. Cause like you said, it's not like they're clear up at the top and three point attempts or something. And I'm clearly not you know, against spacing or the modern NBA game. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's the types of threes at times, the quality of the threes that they're getting and why I think that might be depressing what some of the conversion rate is. Cause like right now, the only two players on the roster who are shooting better than 35% from three are Duarte and Jeremy Lamb. That's it. Everyone else is, is below is not even, some people are not even close to 35% right now. So it becomes, you know, what type of threes are you getting? And even Eddie Gill, I think mentioned this, uh, 
in the post game, whenever they were waiting for Rick Carlisle to talk to the media, that there's a difference between whether it's a coming out of a post up or it's a player getting two feet in the paint and you're spraying out. And those are what I would call like a paint touch three. And you're just kind of like, I don't want to use this term completely, but dinking around on the perimeter. Like again, and I understand it's somewhat personnel derived. Like there was a possession that people can look at on my timeline where Brad Wanamaker comes off of a pick or actually rejects a pick, takes two dribbles, picks up the ball, passes it out to O'Shea. Like it's supposed to be driving kick, but it's, there's just, it's so like catch and hold and take two dribbles and immediately abort the dribble and pass it back out until somebody ends up having to take like a Chuck three that isn't really that much in rhythm. And then there's the whole other thing that you're saying, like as much as like, I'm glad that miles and Sabonis can make threes when they're open. Like that was great in the first game against Charlotte when made when Sabonis made four threes, it was great in the game against the wizards when miles made five, that's not going to happen game in and game out. And that makes them more complete if they can step out and do that. But I don't need like Sabonis having seven three-point attempts last night. And I don't remember how many miles had, which they both started making them in that like late game flurry there with under two minutes to go, but they really weren't before then. And like, let's just be honest. Those are the shots the defense wants them to take. This isn't Maxi Kleba and Kristaps Porzingis. Like it's not Porzingis pulling up from 30 and making closeouts longer. It's not Kleba hitting over 40%. Like, so if you're playing them both at the same time, I'm kind of with you. Like there was probably seven or eight times. And again, like, I don't really think it's the coaching staff telling these guards, Hey, don't give the ball to Miles or Sabonis when they when they've ducked in and have their man pinned. I think it's just like some people aren't super capable of making those passes or recognizing them quickly, but there probably was seven or eight times last night where the two of them had their guy pinned and they didn't touch the ball. Where like it was almost even more egregious if we're being honest when it was Miles than it was Sabonis because like yeah. he had like Fred Van Vliet on him. Yes, because Miles was like burying Fred Van Vliet, whereas when it was Sabonis, like the minute he's getting it on the catch, it's going to be three or four guys. And he, I thought you probably could have taken advantage of that more last night because he was making very quick decisions and reads, and then those would have been wide open shots for other guys. But when it was Miles, it's like what you're saying. Like the level of respect was quite different. And I think if I have to pick, I would rather watch Miles potentially, and I don't even think he would have, but I think I would rather watch Miles miss a shot over Fred Van Fleet at the rim than like Jeremy Lamb taking a step back Chuck three after like three people have passed it around the perimeter and nobody's even put a toe in the paint and it's basically lava. Like, and that wasn't the case for all of them. Like sometimes they were running set plays like their veer pin for Justin to come get a three out of the flow of the action. That's fine. I expect at some point that Justin's going to start shooting the ball better. And I don't know if that's like lingering effects from his ankle. So he was like four of 13 last night. That's Mm -hmm. still a pretty high volume for him, but like he is a shooter at the very least. Like what you're saying about TJ McConnell, that was like mind melting to me that like, it's, I don't even remember. I think that was in the fourth quarter. I don't remember for sure. It was certainly in the second half where he comes off a double drag with Miles and Sabonis and takes a pull up three. Like, and I don't think it's necessarily so much TJ McConnell playing outside of himself as it is like everyone in this system is expected to be able to dribble, pass, and shoot, as we've said, and take shots when they're open. But that's the exact shot that the Nets wanted him to take. Like, you're watching Blake Griffin as the tagger and he literally closes out to Sabonis who doesn't even have the ball while they all just watch TJ McConnell shoot that shot. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like sometimes when I'm watching it, 
I, this system has clearly been successful. Like they had a top offense two years ago, like a historically great offense in Dallas two years ago, running all this. I'm somewhat surprised that there's this much carryover. Like I thought there would be some Dallas stuff. I didn't think there would be like almost all Dallas stuff. And I guess I try to separate myself a little bit. Like sometimes when I'm watching it, I feel a little bit like I felt last year when I was watching Bjorkren's defense where it's like, okay, you're coaching the team you want, not necessarily the team you have. And maybe you can make moves down the line and then this system will sing like it once, you know, showed that it could. And I think if you're healthier, it's going to look a lot better than what it is right now because you just have so many limitations of what you can run and you can't do. But on the flip side of that, it's like, okay, but you can't just keep bleeding losses right now. Yeah. So at a certain point in time, like if TJ McConnell has to be your starting point guard, then there needs to be other ways that you use him to, to generate penetration than like against the Brooklyn Nets, having him shoot off a double drag. Well, yeah. And that just brings up like such a great point. Like you're mentioning, uh, if this is what you're going to do, like, then just make moves because you like clearly this is not optimizing the roster in the slightest. And like you mentioned, it's, I do think with Karras in the offense, that was the best the offense has looked in, in some time um, because he was, I mean, he was so effective as a playmaker coming downhill. He was doing really well getting downhill. Um, I mean, he was getting to his spots, hitting his shots. It just looked very good last night. And also very random side. Uh, I did think that was some of the best defense I've ever seen Karras ever played. Um, granted he wasn't like attacked or anything and it was a, it was a short stint, but still, um, but like you're saying, like, I, okay, well, well then what, what was the idea coming in this year? If you're okay with bleeding losses early on and, and you, you maybe just make a move down the line, like, what is, what is the point of that? Like coming in and being one in six, like, I'm sure they didn't envision themselves being one in six, but like, it just. It, I mean, clearly that was an, a possibility that this team could really struggle out the gates, especially since they knew TJ was going to be out. Uh, they know the propensity for injuries on this roster. Um, it's just a little bit confusing, um, and I'm not really not really understanding it, but it does seem like something that's going to continue given how it's gone already. All right, for me, the dynamic is a little bit more like I don't think it would be completely mismatched. Like when you have – Brogdon and Levert on the floor at the same time and you can keep defenses off balance with both of them like this is just something we saw so little of last year that like it felt like anytime one of them was available the other one got hurt and then the other one got a try and it's like anytime there was only one downhill option in the Bjorkren system people were ducking under whichever one of them it was this offense presents better ways to get around that plus they're just using automatic rescreens on the unders so like I can see ways that people will be more involved and I can completely understand in part why last night it's like okay we got our two-time all-star and, and we know that if he touches the ball below the block that he's going to be getting mugged. But it's like what I said at a certain point in time, until you're fully healthy and you can fully actualize the way you want to play, I think you need to make some adaptations to who's out on the court and how you're going to deal with that player getting swarmed. And I understand that Sabonis had a lot of shot attempts last night, but again, like seven of those were threes and a lot of them were just him getting offensive rebounds. Like it wasn't finding ways to shake him free. Like the one thing I think they could be doing a lot more of than what they are. And this is something that like Maxi Klebo was very good at when you watch Dallas film last year 
And I thought that there would be more of like, especially to help TJ and Brad want to make it right now is they're not screening the secondary help very much. Like there was one play last night where I thought miles had a really heads up move of like setting a flare, I think on his own man for Goga and like Goga is not going to be a threat to shoot off of that, but it did make their defenders have to pay attention yeah. to that for a second so that I forget who the ball handler was got into the lane. Like there just hasn't been enough stuff like that. And it's not that they aren't moving. They are moving. It's just, and I think TJ McConnell referenced this, that like we're still getting used to playing with each other in this system. And that does show up at times because something that I think is funny is like somebody tweeted this this morning that are like, well, at least this system makes way more sense than offensively than Bjorkren's did. I'm like, I still say that Bjorkren's offense did some good things. And the funny thing is over the last two games, they've been running some of Bjorkren's plays like they've been trying to incorporate some of the stuff they ran for TJ last year to be able to get him to attack baseline and on one of them like the down screen boomerang that they used for him to attack so much last year like Chris Duarte cuts from one corner to the other right into TJ's driving lane like so it does seem like at times they just completely aren't in sync in terms of where they need to be to optimize the spacing and the way that they want to play but Um, I think something's got to give either, you know, hopefully you get healthy and you can just, you know, hit the ground better running, or you're going to have to make changes for this roster to better fit the way you want to play, or you're going to have to slightly change the system to better fit the players that you have available because it's not getting it done as it is. And, you know, teams are starting to adapt. Like they're starting to know, Hey, they have to run tons of handoffs and I like handoffs. They make perfect sense. But like once a team knows that you have to do that because nobody can get downhill, then that's where it is completely overplaying that yeah. and making it very tough. And then that was stalling out some of the possessions, no matter who the big was, because, you know, they're knifing it and they don't quite frankly, they don't have Doug McDermott anymore, which is a whole nother talking point because like last year, if they knifed that there's one thing that I might write about that they did actively to counter it, but you could also have him curl all the way around it and use a late pass. And he would catch that pass and be able to finish at the rim. There's not a lot of guys who are catching some of the backdoor passes that, that Sabonis has threaded or those over the top ones that are late. Like you have to be able to catch the ball in a tight space. And and it seems like sometimes Justin and Chris aren't quite handling those passes yet, which I don't know that if that will improve as the season goes on, but that's been another factor, at least for me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's just been, uh, it's been vexing to say the least. Um, well, where do you want to go next with this? Cause I do think there are a couple directions we can go. Um, you want to talk about miles? I do think it, we, we kind of need to have a small conversation about miles. Sure. Let's kick that one off. You can start. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, so Miles has had a very up and down year, obviously. Uh, he had a career night against Washington. Um, overall, I mean, I think defensively, he's been Miles Turner still. Um, we talked a little bit about the perimeter defense before, but I, I don't really think that's anything new. Um, he's still been incredibly good as a, as a rim deterrent, but uh, offensively, it's just been a little bit rough. Uh, and saying a little bit is, is you know, that's underselling it. Um the team has needed quite a bit more from him as a shooter and it just hasn't been there for him. I know he's been streaky throughout his career and I do think he has been more aggressive in just taking open threes. He's record scratched a little bit the last two games, but overall I do think the, um, you know, willingness has been better. 
Um, but the free throw shooting has been been oddly rough too, which has never been a problem for him in his career. Uh, I mean, just where are you at with this? Because it's been uh, it's been a little bit odd. Well, I mean, if we're being completely honest, a lot of it was odd before the season even started. Yeah. Like, I mean, at media day, he talked about, I mean, just, and these aren't like, this wasn't all said into direct quote, but things that he brought up was that he could guard three, fours and fives, that they have five players in the starting lineup who av- can average over 20 points per game, that he wanted more touches and that, that he's wanted that from the franchise for the last two seasons. And a lot of times when he's brought these up, like even in the video that Valley Sports said, he typically references specifically the last two seasons, which is kind of interesting because, I mean, I know that his touches did dip somewhat, but that seems like a reference to when they started starting double big to me. I don't know that. that was That's a question he would have to answer if that's what he's getting at. But that kind of seems like what the quiet part is being said, even if it isn't being said out loud. So, I mean, he very much put it out there. He made the video saying like what his perception was and that people, you know, didn't know everything that he can do. And he hasn't gotten to show that show that. And then the first game against Charlotte was pretty rough. As you said, like the Washington game, I give him tons of credit because again, they weren't running a bunch of plays for him in that game. Like the wizards weren't guarding him and he made them pay for the fact that they weren't going to guard him. And then in the next game against Miami and then in the following one against Milwaukee, he battles foul trouble But at the same time, it's what you're saying, like the game against Milwaukee, I think in particular, like he kind of record scratched out of some of the open threes that he could have taken. And in the one against Miami, he was just kind of forcing some stuff off the dribble that wasn't as open like it was when against the Wizards. So, I mean, the fourth quarter stuff, like we said on the last podcast, we can't just act like that isn't a talking point. It is like the fact that you're already downsizing when Karis and TJ Warren aren't available is something that needs to be discussed because like the first few games you could, you could explain it away and be like, okay, Charlotte's playing really small. You know, they decided they wanted to play small too. They don't feel confident running this offense when Sabonis is not on the floor. All right. Like to me, I'm still in the place. I don't know where you are. I'm still in the place that your best players need to be able to play together. And if you can't find a way no, to I do agree. that, then you need to make a move. So like, to me, I would rather they just continue to try playing them both out there because you're going to have to in the long run. Like, you're going to run up against teams in the playoffs that are going to play small, and these are two of your best players. But, you know, from there, it got a little bit, you know, I don't want to use the word awkward because they say that it isn't, but, you know, you're playing the Bucks, and it was no longer about we're, we're not playing them in the fourth quarter because the Bucks are small or we want to play small. Like, they played Goga. Then when they're playing Toronto, like, I don't know, maybe that was a case of we already feel like the game's out of hand, to be quite honest in that game. I was a little bit surprised that they even brought Sabonis back in. And as it turned out, they did make a little bit of a run. So maybe that one's a little bit more excusable, but they were playing IJAX over him before IJAX, you know, had the knee injury. And I didn't, I kind of thought IJAX would have fit in that matchup earlier than that, but, um, you know. And then obviously here last night against Toronto, he played, which to his credit, I thought he played well against Toronto. His shooting numbers don't really show that, but I thought there were spots where he probably should have got the ball and didn't. And I thought overall he played pretty well and knew where to be. But that first game against Toronto is what you're talking about. Like at a certain point, when is this still tenable? Because like the one possession I brought up and showed on, on after that game was over, like Sabonis did not even have the ball. He was standing on the block. Duarte had the ball on the, on the, right side corner and was going to try to enter it to Sabonis and nobody like Fred Van Fleet is guarding three people at once. 
like for one, like pull over into that open space. So he has to cover more ground, but then the ball does end up going to miles and he doesn't make the shot. So it becomes like with both of them, like, you know, what it's just kind of a, what are we doing here type thing? And it's not that miles hasn't been useful at all. Like he had tremendous blocks last night. I agree with you. Like he still does stuff as a rim protector though. If they're going to be doing more with hedging, the ball isn't getting to the rim quite as much as it is, but, um, it's definitely been up and down. And I totally agreed with the article that Tom wrote a few nights ago, whenever he said, basically like, you know, anytime people have got asked about this and some national reporters have asked them in the media sessions and they're kind of like, well, that's been a polarizing topic around here. You know, well, we've been talking about this forever and we enjoy playing with one another or, you know, if it was going really well, we wouldn't be talking about it being a polarizing topic. Cause why would it be polarizing? Like if it was going really well, we would all just be talking about how great it is. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm I'm right there with you. Um, it's just uh, the, the push-pull just feels like too much at this point, and it just kind of – there has to be some sort of change. And especially with the team starting off like this, um, again, like, like we've talked about, it's not just because the team isn't well-optimized, but that's a big part of it. Um, it just feels like something has to happen with this because it's, it's getting uncomfortable. Um, just in watching it in general. And like, I, I do think that, um, well, Miles certainly deserves criticism. I think people do tend to take it too far. Like um, he is, he, he solidified himself as a starting player in the league. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know For if sure. I necessarily agree with what he thinks he can be offensively. Like I would love that to be who he is offensively. It's not right now. Um, but it's just like, he's too good of a player to be sitting entire fourth quarters in games that are still winnable. Like, like I, I'm, I'm right in the same boat with you. Like this is not AAU. This is not high school. You can't just tell a kid to go sit down and be like, oh, well, we're trying to win tonight. Um, so we're going to put somebody else out there. Like to a degree, I get it. But at the same time, okay, you're paying this guy $18 million has solidified himself as a starter on your team. You can't just bench him. You have to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, then trade him for somebody else who's going to make sense on your team because it's just kind of ridiculous at this point, but yeah, I mean, um, I agree. Some of the talking points, I, I, I do think that like, if it wasn't the overall dynamic, I mean, just like last night, they play, they played several minutes with Goga and Sabonis together just because like, and I don't think Goga's played poorly, but I think it's just because they're trying to find minutes to, to, you know, make this whole thing work when you have this many bigs on the roster at once. And they did pick up Goga's option yesterday, which I understand why they did like, that's an insurance policy in case you do want to trade one of them. And if, if you, you know, or if one of them gets hurt this year, now that IJAX has the hyperextended knee, you still need him in emergency settings. So if you go into next year, which is what the options for, and you do end up making a trade, you already have him on the books. And if he had overperformed this year, you can't pay him more than what that option would have been. So I understand all that from a business standpoint, but like, I do think some of it goes too far. I think if all that dynamic wasn't there, Miles would be a starting and closing big on a lot of rosters. And I don't, I, in general, like don't like to use the word soft about anybody. And I don't really think that completely applies. Like I understand he had the own goal in the one game against Milwaukee and then he ended up throwing the ball away. But like, that's kind of one of those things where like when something like that happens, that's one on tape that you just, you know, it's whatever. He knows he made a mistake. Like we don't need to tell him he made a mistake in that setting. Like Sabonis had one of those against Atlanta last year. and I felt the same way. Like, yeah, that was bad. We move on. We don't need to talk about that. It happened because I don't really think that he, you know, doesn't understand that it shouldn't have happened. 
but I just don't like using that word. And I do think that he's been like, just by comparison to his own self, when he was like a rookie, I do agree with the broadcast in a lot of cases that he has sought contact more when he puts the ball on the floor and he has sought contact more when he's trying to box out for his teammates to get rebounds or like, I'm not saying the box out numbers are like way off the charts or something, but I can see a difference in him. Just like what I brought up with Sabonis in the defense earlier by his own standard, I can see a difference on those fronts. And I just really don't like using that word about athletes. So um, some of that stuff could definitely calm down. I think. Yes, I am. Uh, I am right there with you. Um, well, I know that we have uh, one more segment we want to hit on for sure. Um, you, you heard some stuff on a radio show this week, apparently, and it's not just a radio show. So I'll let you lead off with this one. Cause I, uh, I know we're kind of in lockstep with this. Yeah, it was, it was on, uh, it wasn't in local indie radio. I'll just say that, but there was a person uh, who was basically making comments and I've seen some of this on Twitter too, that like, you know, last season, like that wasn't all Bjorkren's fault and it's all these players and like clearly now Rick Carlisle, this or whatever, like if he can't get more out of it, like that's the roster. Like, I don't know where you're at, but like, that's not going to repaint my thought process of what happened last season at all, because even if they don't turn this around, And that to me is just going to say like, yeah, this roster does have limitations. Obviously you're not making another coaching change at that point in time, you'd be making changes to fit the way that Rick Carlisle wants to play. You would be trying to find players that better fit that system. And to be quite frank, like when I, this system already has a proven track record, like what I said before, like you're not going to be acquiring Luka Doncic to run Spain pick and rolls and be making like magical passes out of double teams. I understand that point but like at least we can look at some of the other players with Dallas and see how they did maximize people and that it worked and like oh by the way Rick Carlisle actually has experience and has won a championship versus Bjorka and I can look at that defensive system and while it was similar to the Raptors it was more it was even more aggressive than what the Raptors were doing I don't know that even if they made trades and Bjorka stayed that that would have ever been a viable solution, even though there were obstacles. And I'm not saying that none of that happened. Like obviously Bjorken had injury issues, just like Rick Carlisle does now. And last season wasn't a great season for a first time coach to be a first time coach. There wasn't practice time. There was shortened training camp, but that kind of almost underscores why it wasn't a good idea for him to be trying some of the stuff that he was trying, not to mention the fact that he was just coaching the team that he wanted, not the team that he had. And everything that has been reported and some things that I've heard that haven't been reported about what was going on behind the scenes. Like, I don't really feel the need to grant like retroactive passes for last season, just because they're off to another rough start. Like, I don't know. Like, do you feel the need to like repaint Bjorkren's tenure with the Pacers? No, not at all. Um, I actually think if anything, people should be more critical of it. Um, Like, (laughs) And that's not to be unfair, but I still just really struggle with the idea that people think that was just complete, quote unquote, fake news, as as a lot of people put in my mentions. Um, No, like way too much stuff came out with that and has been, you know, backed by multiple people, not just one person trying to, quote unquote, get clout or anything like that was real reporting. Like, that's not just crap. Um, and, And you've seen how the players have talked about things, even even just you know, coming into media day and how different it felt for them and, and how they were talking about things compared to what it was last year. Like, I, I just don't understand taking that stance. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Like this doesn't excuse anything from last season. 
um, in the slightest to me. And I think if yeah, anything, but- this is more on, okay, well, maybe the front office should not have come in and viewed this as a Rick is our free agent. And Hey, Tory Craig's here too. Like, and not to slight Tory Craig he had career game against Brooklyn. And I do think he's been very impactful. Someone who would have helped a lot last year, but also like the roster is what it is. Like it's the same roster as last year with one or two tweaks that aren't necessarily huge. And if you're going to view Rick as being like this end all be all of changing things, Okay, that that hasn't borne fruit yet. And again, yes, injuries play a part, but that you know, it's it's just not that cut and dry. So, um, yeah, I, I think and that's it, yeah, yeah, because I think that there. I mean, I think you and I have both said it. I think most people have said it. I think there's going to be a ceiling to what this roster can do, regardless. I mean, I'm not willing to be completely out. Like last night, I was surprised at how like. I don't want to say defeatist, but like we still haven't seen what this team can do when they're healthy. And maybe that never happens. Maybe they're never healthy at the same time, which is a completely different and and I think valid conversation to have, whether it was right to bet on continuity for people that haven't shown that they can all be healthy at the same time. But I mean, I don't know. Like to me, it's more a story of right now looking at it and being like, okay, they were kind of coaching a roster defensively in a way that didn't really fit who was available. And now in some respects that's happening offensively, but it also brings up some questions like, and not that TJ has been bad. He had good moments last night and it totally stood out like a sore thumb. Like again, no offense when he wasn't out there and Brad Wanamaker was like, I don't really care what the plus minus numbers were. Like my eyes told me a different story, but like watching him take those threes at the end of the game against Brooklyn, it does bring questions up for me a little bit. Like if this was what, how you wanted to play and what type of players you were going to need to play this way, like why was such a priority put on re-signing him? And even sometimes with the Torrey Craig stuff, like I think that's a good signing. He obviously played really well against the Nets, had a career night, but like the night before against Toronto, he didn't even play till the fourth quarter. And yeah. like, I'm not going to pretend like I, I think a lot of times his offense can be just slightly other. Like, I don't really know how to refer to it. It's like his rhythm is off from the rest of the team or where he needs to be. And he was really good about that in Brooklyn at making cuts and making himself available and, and running in transition. But it's like, that's the guy that you signed saying that like you knew that TJ Warren was going to be out or you anticipated that he might be out for a time. So we signed Torrey Craig to be all the guy guard guys like OG on and then he didn't even play until the beginning of the fourth quarter. And then that team did go, they did go on a little bit of a run there, but like some of that type of stuff from a team building standpoint has been a little questionable for me. Yeah. Like if, if they knew this is how they wanted to play and if they knew like, as they're saying they did, like they, they said that they signed Torrey Craig with the anticipation that TJ Warren wasn't going to be ready. So they had to have had some knowledge that TJ Warren wasn't going to be ready or they wouldn't be saying that now, but um, maybe some of that's for another time, but we'll see yeah. once they get healthy. But I think that there are some valid questions on some of the uh, roster assembly to this point. Yes, most definitely. I'm i I'm right there with you, Caitlin. Um well, I think I think that is a good place to leave off on today. Uh, we have another full slate of games coming up this week. I'm looking right now. I know Spurs tomorrow, our guest today. Oh, no, I'll drop this today, so it'll be tomorrow when it comes out. That was the most confusing sentence I've put out in my life. Uh, Knicks on Wednesday, Blazers on Friday, and Sacramento, who has been actually a very fun watch on, uh, on Sunday, and they've been better too. Their offense has been absolutely torching it. 
And uh, to make my heart very full, Harrison Barnes, who's like my favorite player in the league, is is currently averaging 25 and 10. Uh, I think that's my favorite part about the beginning of the season is, is just random guys averaging 25 and 10 on crazy efficiency. But um, for everyone listening, uh, thank you for listening. Be sure to stick around. I have Dakota Schmidt coming up on the back end of this to preview the Fort Wayne Mad Ants uh, upcoming season with me. And we have a really great conversation on that, hitting on some of the two-way guys, uh, important guys to look out on the roster who could make a make a jump this year and have a, have a lot of stock in the G League and just uh, some excited, exciting stuff coming around. So stay tuned for that. Welcome back, Pacers fans. And I am psyched to be joined by my good friend and uh, probably who I would consider the main G League expert around uh around basketball and i don't i don't think that that's overstating it and it's dakota schmidt from over at ridiculous upside dakota how are you doing today man uh good mark it's an absolute always a pleasure to talk to you online whether it's twitter or on uh this podcast yeah man uh it's uh it's been a minute since we've done a pod so i'm, I'm psyched to oh, do yeah. this um we are we're convening because the mad ant season uh preseason's already started up for the g league Ignite's already played their first game, which I'm sure I'll have you on to talk about Ignite at some point in the future uh, mm-hmm. because they're very interesting. Uh, not a great game from them yesterday. They went down, I think, 20 to nothing early on. Um, but the Mad Ants the, the, the Ignite as a team, though, caught, caught, up, caught up and only lost by like nine. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't terrible, but yeah. just comparatively, it's a it's a definitely a different team than it was last year. But, um, you know, looking at the Mad Ants, this team is it's really interesting because there are quite a few guys who I think uh, not that they're going to factor in and get playing time immediately this year, but there are a few guys who, who really catch your eye and seem to have uh, a pretty good deal of, of backing from the Pacers, whether it be by two way or just being brought in in general. Um, obviously O'Shea Brissett played with the Mad Ants for the majority of last uh, G league season and got called up with the Pacers and ended up starting and, and having a great run with the team and is obviously playing well there now. I'm not saying that's necessarily going to happen with anybody on the Mad Ants roster, but I'm psyched to kind of dive in and uh, and look at some of the guys who might be doing that. I guess the first thing I want to ask you coming in, because obviously we've been talking offline about kind of the G League in its entirety. Uh, how does this roster stack up against the rest of the G League to you coming into the year? Um, I I definitely like what I'm seeing from this uh, Mad Ants roster. It has its fair share of intriguing young talent, which we're going to talk about, you know, Dwayne Washington, um, you know, Deshaun Giroux, obviously the two two-way guys, but also, you know, Nate Hinton, who's uh, entering second season, uh, Terry Taylor, Derek Culver, two, you know, interesting players, along with uh, some vets, and uh, Gabe York, Justin Anderson. So, uh, so yeah, I uh, definitely like what I'm seeing from this uh, Mad Ants roster when it comes to a mix between vets that have been there before, but also, um, I guess, high in the relative sense of the G League uh, rookies. Yeah, no, it's kind of funny because I'm, I'm right there with you. I really like the construction. Uh, you mentioned Derek Culver, Benny Boatwright is here. There are a couple of stretch bigs or stretch forwards who I think mm-hmm. provide some, some stuff on the interior as, as rim deterrence while also being able to stretch the floor a little bit on the offensive end. Uh, obviously, the Pacers are playing a five-out scheme right now, so it, it stands to reason that the Mad Ants are going to try and do things similarly, at least that's how I would imagine coming into the year. Um, you know, the the Summer League team, who is a lot of these players were on the Summer League team, 
uh, played the same way that the uh, the Pacers are playing right now. So I would not be shocked by that. I think a good place to start. Well, let's start with the two way guys because I think that's uh, who's who are going to garner the most attention. But there are a lot of guys throughout the roster I want to talk about. I think the guy that I'm most excited about on on the two ways is Dejan. Um, yeah. He was somebody who I had. Uh, um, you know, if he'd been picked with the mid second round pick, I think that's that's around where I had him last year. Um, he and it, actually one of my favorite things about summer league when we were there, getting to watch the Miami Heat play when it was him and Marcus Garrett, because they're kind of mirror images of one another in some ways, uh, you know, ball handlers who don't quite have enough to be a lead guard kind of struggle with their shot, but they're pretty athletic and insanely good defenders. And that's exactly what Dejan brings as a, a you know, really rangy defender. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that he's like a switch guy, like he can switch on guards or I mean, switch guards to, to smaller wings. But um, regardless, like he brings quite a bit as a ball handler, I think that that you maybe wouldn't get from looking at his billing. Um, he's a solid playmaker. Again, still not quite in that mold as like a primary playmaker. But um, what did you think of him just speaking offensively about what he brings to the table and what you want to see him improve on this year? Because I do think he'll be one of the main focal points for the team. Yeah, I agree with you about how, um, like, as a as a main focal point of the offense, I don't think he's there yet when it comes to his efficiency, efficiency as a shooter. But when it comes to his work as, you know, as a main creator, main playmaker within the offense, I do like what I see um, of him just being able to make, you know, quick decisions on the dime with the ball in the stands, especially when, you know, uh, dropping dimes, uh, you know, to some of his uh, teammates and also his ability to, like, he's, you know, 6'5", super skinny, but he's he's super quick. He's a super quick guard. So, yeah, um, I, for for the Matt, when it comes to the Matt Ant, um, I want, you know, other players to, you know, be the center of the offense. But when it comes to, you know, you know, a secondary creator, secondary facilitator, I think uh, Deshaun Drew is going to do a good job of that. Yeah, like I I think ideally he's going to be running more stuff second side. Like maybe you yeah. will get him some – I mean, I would imagine they're going to get him some spread pick and roll looks and try and force feed him a few options on the ball because they want to develop him into that more. And we saw that, um, you know, he didn't really – I'm trying to remember. In, in preseason when he played, he got a little bit of reps like that. Um, but I think ideally, like, like you mentioned, I think – the ideal version of Dejan Drew is somebody who fills out a little bit more and is more of a small wing than somebody who's doing, you know, a lot of on-ball stuff. Um, and a lot's going to depend on the shot, too. Part of what's exciting about that, too, though, is, I mean, I, I don't know if we're in the same boat here. I love watching Houston under Kelvin Sampson. Uh, Dejan Drew and Nate Hinton played basketball together at, at yes. uh, University of Houston. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited to watch those two play together. I think – um, and we'll talk about Dwayne in a minute, but I do want to like, you know, obviously talking about Nate. Nate is really interesting too, because I think there's, I don't want to say similarities between him and Dejan. Dejan has much better ball skills. Um, but Nate is somebody who uh, unfortunately just hasn't hit yet in the NBA, but is somebody I believe will. Where are you at with the shot? Because I think the shot is the biggest thing for him. And it really just hasn't been there for him at the NBA level yet. Um and that's kind of the, the 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 thing that has to be there if he's going to become an NBA level prospect. When you say this shot hasn't been there at the NBA or at the pro level, um, I feel like that's a bit unfair because he you know had such limited playing time when he was a two way yeah. with Dallas, 
And, you know, at the Julie bubble, they only had 15 games. So, you know, if you, if you struggle for three or four games, then your efficiency over the course of a season is, you know, not going to be as, as great. But when it comes to his work um, as a shooter of what I saw of him in the senior year with Houston, I uh, like what I saw, but I agree with you about Hinton um, when it comes to his struggles as a ball handler and, you know, being able to create his own shot, you know, uh, downhill and, you know, finishing around the rim. Yeah, it's tough, too, because, uh, like, he really is more of a four on offense right now, like, ideally, um, which just makes it kind of tough because he's six foot five. But he does do things that are, like, very fourish. Like, he's he's a good defender. He, he makes good rotations. He's impactful in passing lanes. Um, he's not awesome man up, but he's solid there. He's not, like, amazing in screen navigation or anything. But, um, like, he's – probably the greatest guard defender I'm not guard defender, greatest guard rebounder I have ever seen uh just in general like I mean outside Russell Westbrook like you know Russ is Russ is a different a different, different sir may, person, I, may I uh, talk to you about uh Jamario Jones Jamario Jones is a wing I think Jamario Jones is a wing I would consider well I guess Nate's a, Nate's a wing too if you really think yeah. about it but two three I mean he's a, they're both two threes well big let's put it like this Nate Hinton uh, has an eight minute uh YouTube highlight reel that strictly rebounds from his senior year at at Houston. So I think that's it's it's very indicative of, of the player that he is. Are, are, um, are we gonna have? Are, are we gonna I mean, have sophomore Jones rebounding uh, the bake? I'm down. I'm in. We can, I mean, Jamario Jones is like one of the best rebounders in basketball. So there's that. I mean, that, I mean, he fair. did average. I mean, when he was with the Lakers few years ago, he did average, you know, eight rebounds and. Almost three offensive rebounds per game in only twenty four minutes. So, you know, I'm 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 for life. I'm Team Mario. He should be on an NBA roster. I am right there with you. I think as like an eleventh man, somebody who just provides energy. I I, I feel that. Um, I, I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I'm sorry. I got a little defensive there. Oh no, you're allowed to, man. Um, <laughs> well, I guess the, just to close out on Nate. I mean, what are you hoping to see from him this year? Obviously, we talked a little bit about the ball skills, but how do you think he could get utilized that would, uh, you know, put him in better positions to to maybe flash what he can do at the NBA level? Um, with with the talent that uh, Fort Wayne has, I feel like he is. He should just be an absolute force when it comes to, you know, off ball, whether it's a catch and shoot, you know, you know, dives uh, to basket or of course, you know, <laughs> just, just doing this magic, you know, around the rim mm-hmm. as a, as officer rebound, just being a threat um, there. And I feel like he has the, you know, talent around him to do that in a Dwayne Washington, in a Gabe York or a Kiefer Sykes that knows or so, you know, ball dominant. So him just continuing to showcase himself as a great, you know, off-ball thread, whether, you know, it's at the two, three, or four, because I feel like he has, you know, potential to play all those positions, which, you know, makes me optimistic about his NBA future, even though he's currently in the G League as a standard uh, G League player, not a not a two-way. I feel like, you know, that could change, obviously, as the uh, season goes on. But just just continuing to establish himself as a premier off-ball threat and continuing to get those reps as a shooter, you know, catch and shoot, 
maybe some, you know, off the dribble mixed in with that. Yeah, I'm there with you. And I want to see, like you mentioned too, a lot of the cutting. Like, I think he just yeah. has to become like, I mean, he has a real opportunity to be focused in, on being just the best cutter on the team work on being better as a small screener and, and doing things like that, because that's what he's going to need to do to fit in the NBA. And I honestly think like, especially for him is like, we talked about more of like, he's kind of a four and a two threes body, like playing alongside somebody like the Sabonis or getting opportunities playing off of a post. hub makes a lot of sense in my, in my opinion, but again, a lot of it's, you know, can the shot come along too? Now, do you feel like Hinton has potential as like a, like a short role option with like one thing we haven't mentioned is that he also has good vision as mm-hmm. a as a facilitator as a secondary facilitator. Do you feel like he has upside with his role as a Roman and with his skills as a facilitator? You know, just doing more work when it comes to short roll and you know pushing the ball out to you know corner shooters and stuff like that. Yeah, I th- it's something that we haven't really gotten to see. Like, I think we saw it a little bit at Houston. He had the ball in his hands a little bit more there than than I think would be the case here. But um, I do think that that's something that we could see and I would like to see. But also just given how many – there's not a million bigs on the roster, but there are enough guys in the roster who are bigs that I don't know that we'll see those possessions. Um, but I would like to because, I like, I'm, I'm there with you. I like seeing – get as much versatility out of guys as possible. Um but like you mentioned, I think the secondary creation options are really going to be there as a passer. Um, and also just as being like a – I mean, he was the, – the way that he used to ghost cut baseline at Houston is what I want to see a ton of here because we didn't get to see it a ton in, uh, again, you know, summer league and um, preseason weren't great for him because it's just odd circumstances. It's not easy to show out when you're with a brand-new team. Um, but that's stuff I would really like to see from him. So I guess that can that can be a good transition to Dwayne Washington because um, I I don't want to say that I'm low on Dwayne Washington. I understand Dwayne Washington. Um, he's a very, very good shooter, um, especially off the dribble, capable of creating his own shot. He's actually like pretty solid at getting to the rim. Um, but the passing just isn't really there. Um, like he can make simple reads, but it's just whether or not he does. Um, I want to be like kind and like, I, I, how often have you seen Dwayne Washington Jr. Pass the ball out of pick and roll? Not a lot. Yeah. Like, um, I was, I first knew about EJ, like I'm about, uh, Dwayne Washington from uh, watching EJ like Dell film, uh, this past, you know, spring before, you know, he decided to go back to us. Ohio State, and as I was watching him, I kept seeing you know Dwayne Washington to shoot because that's what Dwayne Washington done, does to shoot. And I kept on it's like, okay, this guy's a really good shooter, really good at creating his own shot off the dribble, step backs. You know, he has all that. You know, uh, you know, for a certain uh, part of Twitter, he had he has a bag of skills, <laughs> a bag of moves, but then I looked. At his uh his you know player profile, I'm like he's six three. I'm like if he was if Washington was like six five six six, I feel like he definitely could have been like a late first, early second round player. But at his height and the fact that he isn't that that great of a facilitator quite yet, and the, I guess both not a great great uh facilitator but also just not that unselfish. Like he, 
he focuses on on creating some shop, which you know I get. He's he does a you know great job of that, but uh, I agree with you. You know, at his height, you know, you expect to see you know more uh, you know playmaking for others out of him. Yeah, and I think that's what I would really like to see with the madness. I don't know if it's going to happen because it didn't really happen much at Ohio State. It hasn't happened a lot yet. Uh, you know, in, in watching him, what he did in preseason and at summer league, like just the like the full Dwayne Washington Jr. experience was he had one of the best individual performances at summer league in game one against the Knicks. I think he had 28 points was absolutely in fuego and then did not do a lot the rest of the time because he struggled with the shot. It wasn't, you know, really fully there from him. Um, it happens, but again, like that's just kind of his archetype right now. Can he build in some more of the, the playmaking? Because I do think he's a pretty solid ball handler. Yeah. Um, and like we mentioned, like he is like surprisingly solid at getting to the rim. Like I think most of the time when you think about a combo guard, they're not awesome getting to the rim. Um, he's not exactly an amazing, amazing finisher there, but like getting there is half the battle. He has a good build though. Yeah, no, he's very strong. And I think like yeah. you could see the, the idea of him becoming somebody who draws fouls at a high rate. So I understand the Pacers wanting to, uh, invest in him and it's just going to be interesting to see how he kind of starts to build out that playmaking because um, I think other than Kiefer Sykes there isn't really a guard on the roster who's like a great pick and roll distributor or just you know in general like primary distributor and even Kiefer Sykes is to me he's more of like a uh, like ideally he's a backup or ideally he's not having to run that much of your offense. Like I think he's somebody who who gets you into a set and then it shifts softball, kind of like a Darren Collison type guy when he was here in, in Indiana. Yeah, what's happening? I was actually gonna take a drink of water, but it's not oh you're good man. <laughs> so so yeah I um I'm I'm still mixed on Dwayne Washington because when a shot isn't isn't doing I don't know like I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. Like, when his shot isn't going, he still has that option there um, when it comes to taking the ball to rim. But I just want to see him be more unselfish with his work um, off the dribble and be able to, you know, use his skills um, when it comes to moving to the basket uh, to create for, you know, others, you know, on the court. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. Um, well, moving along a little bit, one of the guys who I was actually pretty uh, interested by that got picked up um, for this Fort Wayne team is somebody who was also a rookie this year. Um, really popped for me quite a few times uh, in watching West Virginia because I was a big fan of Deuce McBride last year and loved watching him. Oops. That's Derek Culver. Um, Derek Culver is really intriguing to me. I think he was somebody who I had like a borderline second round grade on. Like if somebody had taken him in the in the 50s, I would be like, okay, I get it. Um if you just look at his stat profile, like he didn't take threes at West Virginia, but he was a guy who was capable of stepping out. And I want to see him take more, take threes in general this year. Like he's a good free throw shooter. He's solid for mid range. Oh, no, never mind. He's not a good free throw shooter. What am I talking about? <laughs> but like he did take some mid rangers uh, at West Virginia and is capable a little bit. So I want to see that from him. Decent role, man. Where are you at with Culver coming in? Because I did, uh, there was a lot that I saw from West Virginia that made me kind of interested in him as a player. Um, I'm interested too, and he's definitely somebody that I um I just looked at him up and he is 23, which makes me a little bit uh less interested in, but I feel like he's somebody that can after spending two to three years in the G League, 
can be a call-up option because, you know, his skills as a role man and being able to pop out and hit the mid-range are, you know, are clearly there. But I, I want to see him continue, you know, to develop as just being a more efficient uh, free throw shooter because 62% from the line is not good. Yeah. I had forgotten that he was that rough from the line, just considering, because he has a pretty smooth stroke. So I was like, going back, I was like, oh, wait, I did not realize that he was that poor from the line. Um, But yeah, I agree too, because like, he's a very solid roller. Like, I like him as a screener. He's a good screener. Um, Very good forward jumper. I think that goes into his defense, though. Where are you at with him defensively? Because he's, uh, I mean, obviously, given his size and and build, he's not going to be a switch guy. I thought he was solid defensively at West Virginia. But the lateral quickness isn't amazing, and he's not an awesome leaper off of his back foot, which makes it a little bit harder to be a rim protector. Um, so where are you at with him defensively? Your face is saying, eh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, about that just from just from a statistical perspective because he didn't even average a block per game. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> he almost – like he was getting close to averaging three fouls per game in only 26 minutes, which – is not that great. Again, um, I have to admit I didn't watch uh, a lot. Um, I don't remember a lot from what I saw of him when I was watching some uh, Deuce McBride films. So he's somebody that I want to you know take a fresh look at when it comes to uh, when it comes to him in the G League. But he's definitely going to have an opportunity opportunity to work right because the only like real bait other bait that the Mad Ants have is Benny Bodright, who is, you know, a player that we may talk about later. And I'm also uh, very interested in. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I'm hopeful for Culver, but again, a lot's just going to be like, okay, how does, how does he round out his game to be a more efficient and be like, can he be a little bit more of a four, um, mm-hmm. which I'm not entirely sure. I, I do think he's like reasonably athletic, but it's just going to be, rounding out his game and finding that because again what, like what, gonna, uh, when it comes to round, uh, rounding out his game what what traits do you want him to improve on well yeah i mean like you mentioned uh like we we know he can pick and pop from mid-range can he take corner threes like can he just starting this year can he take corner threes because i think that's yeah. gonna be huge like you can, and when it comes to corner threes he's gonna have uh you know players to deliver him the ball you know yeah um Giroux can do that Hinton can do that. Um, Keeper Sykes can do that. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. Like, can so can he t- can he take corner threes? Can he be more efficient around the rim? Um, can or I mean, just in general, can he be? Uh, again, doesn't have to be a switch defender, but can he do? Can he be more coverage versatile? Can he play closer to the level of the screen? Um, can you ask him to guard a a, a bigger wing at times, even if it's not going to be perfect? Like is there versatility in what he can do defensively? Um, and I would also say too, like short roll opportunities. Are you going to, is he going to be able to improve as a passer? Cause that's one of the areas where he wasn't great last year at West Virginia is can you pass a little bit more capably out of the post? Cause otherwise we don't really like, it's, it's a lot harder to have someone in the post unless they're, you know, scoring 72% at the rim. Like it's just not a, it's not the most efficient mode of offense. Um, so that'll be stuff to look at, but like you mentioned with Benny boat, right? I think, <laughs> I, I'm excited to talk about him. He was one of my favorite players just ever in college basketball. He was so fun at USC. A, because the last name is just amazing. We love a, a, liter, a literal. <laughs> I think that's the way to say it. Um, names that alliterate are very fun. There you go. You got it. You got uh, it. Yes. 
<laughs> just a, a really cool like face up forward. Uh, he can shoot. It, it, you know, it's a lot of it's just on you know how good are the sh- is, is the shooting going to be. Um, I haven't necessarily followed up with him a ton in the G League. He didn't play a lot in summer league because he got injured early on. Um, so he ended up missing a pretty decent amount of time. Uh, but he's still relatively young. I think last year was only his second year in the G League, if I remember correctly off the top of my head. Um, 6'10", has a good frame. What do you like about Bo Wright? Because I, I do think, like you mentioned, he's really interesting. And for a team that kind of uh, could use forward depth, you know, if, if they can develop somebody like Benny Bo Wright, that would be tremendous. Uh, when it comes to Bay Boatwright, I loved what I saw of him uh, last year when he was in the D-League bubble. And that was his first year in the D-League. He was a 2019 draft pick, but mm. I think he might have been dealing with injuries um, in, you know, in 20, 2019, which is why he didn't play. But when I saw him in the D-League bubble, I loved what I saw like you said, um, his face-up game, his, you know, ability to continue to, you know, hit those above the break, uh, uh, catches you jumpers is just extremely, uh, impressive. Also, I saw some, uh, some hints of him being able to work with the ball in his hands in transition, which was a lot of fun. So when it comes to, you know, some of the more established players, like this is only Benny's second season, in the G League, but he's he is uh 25 right now, yeah. So, um, he is one player that I'm looking forward to watching. And also, don't be surprised if you see some words about Benny in the future, I'm in the maybe future, like maybe tomorrow, Monday, when you're listening to this. Well, I'm yeah, I'll be very excited for that and I'll definitely share it. But I mean, just going <laughs> off of what he does. Like to illustrate, I think a lot of times when we think of a stretch four or somebody who's a who's a shooter that's bigger, you're you're thinking about low volume. Last year with the Memphis hustle, uh, Benny Boatwright shot thirty eight percent on threes. seven and a half attempts per game. Yes. So like he he guns it. Like he's not he's not a shy shooter, which I really like about him. And this is a team that does have quite a few guys who record scratch in the second unit. So like if Benny Boatwright were to really show out with the G League this year. I do think there's a way that you could say that there's an opportunity could come up because again, this team could use more uh, versatile forwards on the team just for what that could bring. Um, what do you think about his defense though? Like I I've never necessarily honed in on his defense. He was never been a really big stocks guy uh, in the G league or when he was at USC. Um, so what do you think of him defensively? Um, offense is why I like Benny Boatwright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, offense is well, like Benny Bow right. Um, yeah, and when it comes to when it comes to stocks, you know, steals and blocks. Um, he had a combined eight in 15 games, which isn't good. But but defense is not part of the Benny Bowright experience. It's his ability, you know, at the size he is at at 6'10, 235, to be able to to mix. Uh, volume and efficiency, which he was able to do uh, last year in the G League bubble, like he said, uh, shot really well on seven and a half uh, threes per game. But that's something he has done throughout his entire career, right? He, I have his numbers in front of me, in his uh, career at USC, 38% on uh, six attempts per game, which is great. That is great 
you know, for for that, you know, stretch for. So, yeah, I uh, I love me some Benny, and I am looking forward to seeing more of him uh, this year with uh, with the Mad Ants. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Well, I think a good uh, good place to, to, to close out would be on Terry Taylor because he was another guy who was brought in, uh, played with the team in summer league, and and really showed out, uh, got some opportunities in preseason too. Uh, what do you think of him coming into the year? Because he's kind of like a really interesting, like not a big wing, but like he's a wing who is big. If that, like I, that's the, the weird thing. <laughs> he's I think a wing that is big and does things that you expect of bigs. Yes, exactly. I think that's he. He kind of like obviously not the same player, but he's like uh, in that sort of like Jay Sean Tate, David Waba role of like a guy who was pretty prolific in college, but is like just very odd in like how he's going to fit into the league. And uh, just because he's not a big, like, how do you, how do you factor that in? But he was impressive to me. Like he does stuff that is, uh, is cool. I, I, that is like my, but my worst analysis I think I've ever given, but I just don't have a better way to describe Terry Taylor's game. What, what do you think of him coming into the year? Um, He is a, he's a very, I think he watches film of uh, Bruce Brown with the Nats. He's like, I could do that. Just give me the opportunity, and I could do that. Like <laughs> his numbers, his numbers. He's you know six five, two thirty, and in his senior year with Austin P, he averaged five offensive boards per game. Month. Yeah, five. <laughs> that pretty, is pretty intriguing, man. Yeah, he is. He is an intriguing intriguing player and um i think just just developing at uh when it comes to just a corner shot corner three would you know be big for him also we're gonna play him (laughs) if if we're gonna do that my idea of having um of having you know nate hinton work a bit as a role man and you know creating magic in the short role we're gonna put you know, Taylor, are you just gonna just stash him in a dunker spot and have like uh like Benny out there um at the at the three-point line or like where does he fit within within both the Madden's offense and you know in the offense in general because he does have skills that are extremely intriguing, but he's going to go from an Austin P system that was emphasized around his, you know, skill set and the strengths to having to find a role in, in the G league, which um, is going to be an interesting, you know, thing to track. Yeah. It's, it's hard with him too, because or not even hard is the wrong way to put it. Like, He's just like you mentioned, he's he feels very moldable, moldable. Like he's he's really interesting, but like you don't really quite know what to make of him yet. And it's hard to to, to figure out a role. Um, I do wonder if it, he's a guy who maybe has to go through a couple teams before he really finds a place. I'm interested to see how he could fit in with the Pacers. Like like you mentioned, he's a guy he can handle a little bit, but he's not a great passer. Like, OK, can he can his playmaking develop? Like you mentioned, doing short roll stuff. But who's getting prioritized? Is it going to be Terry Taylor or is it going to be Nate Hinton? Um, I, I don't know. Like, I, I do think there are opportunities for both guys, but like, okay, who's playing in crunch time? How does this look? Um, I think he does interesting stuff defensively. He's got like a solid wingspan. And like you mentioned, the, the rebounding at his, at his size is kind of ridiculous, frankly. Um, 
but it kind of comes down to the shot. Like he shot worse every single year uh, he was at Austin P and his, his volume decreased as well, which is, you know, that's, that's not great. You, you want to see somebody shoot more and shoot better, or even if they're not shooting better, shoot more. Um, yeah. But just one, for that thing, one thing that keeps me optimistic is that at least last year, he was a good shooter at the free throw line. Yeah. Yeah, no, 79%. definitely. 79% for the free throw line. That is, that is very good. Yeah. Well, yeah, and he only, unfortunately, only took one, one three with the Pacers in, in summer league, but he also did not – he only played three games. Um, but somebody to definitely keep a close eye on. Uh, he's still young. He has – having one NBA skill for sure and being a crazy rebounder is something. So it's just kind of figuring out how everything else pieces together. Um, well, Dakota, I think we're about ready to get out of here. Do you have any any more closing thoughts on uh, – on the bad answer, just uh, anything you want to plug before we get out of here? Um, watch, continue to watch out for Justin Anderson, NBA vets. Yep. Uh, Justin Anderson, who last when he was in the G League in 2019-20, when he was with the both the Raptors 905 and Long Island Nets, he was one of my finalists for G League MVP. So, um, He's just gonna be an interesting player to watch to see how he how he fits in with this team. Uh, uh new man as head coach Tom Hankins. Um, he has he has an interesting roster to work with. <laughs> uh, you know, let's just say. But yeah, Justin Anderson, continue to keep an eye on him. Uh, Baxter Miles is a player that has impressed me over the course of his career as just a spark plug of the bench. He was fantastic a few seasons ago with the uh, dearly departed Northern Arizona Suns. I'm forever going to have uh, bad opinions about Robert Sarver for both uh, everything involved that Robert Sarver does and the piece, uh, the ESPN piece that is supposed to be coming out about you know all the heinous things he did. Yeah. But also for uh, selling a G League team, and the G League is just so has been so vital when it comes to developing players on the Raptors, on the you know Spurs, on all of these teams. See, I'm sorry, uh, I went on a little bit tangent, a little bit of a anti Robert Server tangent. I think it's deserved on your, uh, on your Pacers <laughs> uh, podcast. But yeah, the Madden's are a team, one of the. I guess the three teams in the uh, G League that I'm going to be uh, looking forward to watching because, uh, like we talked about, they have a lot of intriguing uh, young players. I want to see how they are when it comes to either making tra- the transition to the pros or continuing to develop after the first year, i.e. Benny, i.e. Uh, Nate Hinton. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Well, Dakota – I really appreciate you taking the time, man. This was absolutely fantastic. I will have links down below to go follow Dakota on Twitter and to go read his work over at Ridiculous Upside. He does great stuff. Thank you, man. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day.